The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Please consult a healthcare professional with any medical questions and concerns. If you are experiencing an emergency or need immediate help, call 911. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a therapeutic relationship. I just get so angry. It's hard to sit still. I don't want to be this way. My brain just feels all scrambled. Welcome to Scramble. This is episode six, A Variety of Anxieties. I'm Chad Douglas. And I'm Nikki Shields. So we want to start by reading uh, one of our listener comments. We so appreciate the reviews and ratings that we're getting. So this comes to us from uh, listener Nicole Wheatley. She says, thank you for acknowledging and are willing to talk about the hard stuff. It's something that so many people would rather pretend doesn't exist because it's not pretty. Thank you for being a voice for so many. Nicole, thank you so much for leaving your comments and uh, ratings. That was off of uh, Apple iTunes. We are on several different platforms, and we've learned as we started going about this, because Nikki, I don't think you have a history of being a podcaster, right? No, this is my first go. Same. So we're learning that the more ratings and reviews the podcast gets, the higher up the charts it goes. Thus, more people see it. Our whole goal when we started Scrambled was to educate as many people as we can and just spread the word and start the conversation. So apparently, the more ratings and reviews we get, um, the good ratings anyway, more people see it. And that's what we're all about. So if you don't mind, if you have a second, um, wouldn't mind doing that. We so appreciate it. So today, it is a variety of anxieties. And most people would think, oh, I have anxiety and it's just kind of a generalized nervousness, but there are actually several different kinds or types of anxieties. Explain that to us, Nikki. A couple of things about anxiety disorders. So that that's kind of what we're going to talk about today is disorders. As we've talked about before in previous episodes, you can be anxious or nervous or even you know really panicky about something, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have an anxiety disorder or that mm. you are diagnosable. Um, you, it's totally normal to have anxiety. You should have anxiety sometimes. It's when those anxiety symptoms reach the point that they are interfering with your functioning, when they keep you from being able to live your life, do the things you want to do, find enjoyment in things, that's when we start to look at what we would call an anxiety disorder. And for children specifically, there are, I think, about five different types of diagnoses related to anxiety that that you could get by going to see a counselor, professional psychologist, something like that. So when I think of like children with anxiety or, or when you say they don't want to do the stuff, how do you start to distinguish between my kid is just being... Um, boy, I hate to use the word brat, but just being like, you know, disrespectful, doesn't want to go to the grocery store with me versus this kid is anxious and large crowds, loud noises, bright lights, give him or her physical anxiety problems. So that's a great question. And and where I draw the line is if a, a child consistently struggles with going to the place or doing a thing or, or getting out of the house or uh, something to just over and over and over again, regardless of all the different things that you might try to engage them in that, that's more concerning. That's when you want to start to pay attention. If it seems more willful, meaning, you know, they go when they want to go, but not when they don't want to go, or um, it just, it, it looks as if it's more about wanting to stay and play a video game or do something mm-hmm. else. That's a little bit different. But if you are consistently having trouble 
in the same situations over and over and over again, it, it warrants looking at, you know, and, and even if it isn't an anxiety disorder, that's where it can get really tricky is you can have a difficulty that needs to be discussed and addressed that isn't just bratty behavior, but that doesn't mean that there's a diagnosis at play either. Okay. So that's, that's one more area where raising kids is just really tricky. Yeah. That seems like a very thin line. It is so thin. And hard for the parents. So is does that warrant a conversation with the kid of like, why don't you want to go to the store? Or how does going to the store make you feel? In my years in broadcasting, those were the questions we would ask to get emotional sound bites. You ask your who, what, when to get your information. Who does this affect? What happened? When did it happen? But then it's like, how is this important? Or why does something like this happen? That would get you your sound bites that you would see on the news. So is that conversation with your kid to have at that point, or you just need to kind of study yourself? I, I don't think it's ever too soon to start having conversations about what's not working. I mean, mm. and again, even if even if it's the first time that a child is saying, no, I don't want to go to my friend's house, or I don't want to go to the grocery store, I don't want to go in the car, it ask them why, what's going on? You know, most, most kids will tell you what they don't want. The, the problem, I think the pattern we can get into is when we get frustrated because they're not doing what we're mm. asking them to do. Now they see our anger. They see our mm. frustration. They're not super excited about talking about it. They're not going to, you know, oh, well, I feel really upset about this or my feelings were hurt or I'm anxious or I'm worried or I'm uncomfortable. Those aren't things they're going to talk about if they think they're in trouble. So I, I think that, you know, if you go into these situations where kids are saying, I don't want to, with conversation and understanding in mind, it's a lot easier to get to the bottom of it. Again, whether you're talking about anxiety disorders or just typical childhood behavior. Okay. So let's get into it. What do you think is the most common anxiety disorder in children? Oh boy. That's, that's a big starter question. Okay. Uh, but so that's, uh, that's, that surprises <laughs> me. I thought you'd be like, well, the number one is this, but no, not at all. huh? No, there, there are definitely statistics, but I think anxiety is a tricky beast. As we've talked about so many times now, um, it, it absolutely shows up in so many different ways. And so one of the early ones that you can really start to see and, and wonder about is called separation anxiety disorder. And that's when you've got a kiddo, and this, this can start at a pretty young age, where they just, they don't want to be away from their primary caregiver. Um, and hmm. it, this isn't, I mean, you know, some kids are a little sad when you drop them off at daycare or when they have to go to school. Um, but when that distress is prolonged and they can't calm down or they, they really, really struggle, then we start to look at that. So you can see separation anxiety disorders start anytime between 18 months and three years old. And as I said, it's normal to feel some anxiety when a parent leaves the room or goes out, you know, out of the child's sight but they should be able to be distracted from it. And so okay. separation anxiety is when, you know, a child cannot calm down, cannot handle being separated from that primary caregiver. And at 18 months old or younger, when you say cannot calm down, that's crying? Yeah, crying. Throwing a fit? Throwing a fit, having... Breaking things? It could It could in some kiddos, if their fight or flight response is to be sort of aggressive, you might see some some acting out. But majority of the time that I've seen kiddos with separation anxiety, there's just there's a lot of tears, a lot of, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to daycare. I don't want to go to preschool, whatever their education situation or daycare situation is. They don't want to do that. Um, and, and that's oftentimes in these cases, parents are having a lot of anxiety too about being separated from their kiddos. So the, the, the two kind of fuel one another. Yeah. Um, but this is, you know, I wouldn't say this is the most common childhood diagnosis, but it is the the one that kind of surfaces the earliest. You're most likely to see that in, in younger, like preschool ages, um, where some of the others don't necessarily surface till later. Is this where the tummy aches start coming in? You might 
could see that. Okay. So that's one of the physical symptoms that you could mm-hmm. see. Absolutely. Because I, I don't feel well. I don't want to go to school because the parent's reaction is going to be, okay, if, you, if, you're, if you're sick, I'm going to keep you home from school. Yep, that's right. And and I would say, you know, if you've got a, an 18-month-old that's separate, you know, suffering from separation anxiety disorder, they aren't going to probably have a physical complaint because at that point cognitively they haven't, you know, sort of they're just upset. They're just going to cry and they're going to they're going to seem, you know, just just very emotional about being separated. But as they get older and they get closer to those school ages, that's when you start to see, you know, I would say first, second, third grade, you really start to see more of the I don't want to go, I don't feel well. Um, and the physical complaints come in along with the, I don't want to go. Yeah. Okay. All right. What's another one? So another common childhood anxiety disorder diagnosis is social anxiety disorder. Um, this mm-hmm. used to be called social phobia, and it's it's typically just an intense fear of social and or performance situations, like things like being called on in class or being nervous about meeting new people, starting a conversation, um, you know, even kiddos who maybe they know their stuff really well in terms of their schoolwork, but when they sit down in the classroom to do work, they're so nervous about making a mistake or somebody making fun of them that they can't function. Um, these are kiddos who oftentimes don't want to go to school or don't want to go to play dates or don't want to spend the night at their friend's house or they, they're by themselves on the playground. They're just, they're just fearful of being negatively evaluated by other people or, um, having to, to speak in front of people. So a, a lot of people don't like to read in front of class. Um, some people do. Some kids are very uh, outgoing and, and want to do that kind of stuff. But this is where I would imagine certain other adults, not the parents, need to be in tune to that child to say, <laughs> this kiddo absolutely will not read in front of class. This kid has trouble making friends on the playground. So that's where those teachers and coaches and other people that are around that kid probably need to maybe pay attention. Yes, this this is such an important subject and, and near and dear to my heart because as a kiddo, of course, I was very shy and I, I don't know that I would have met the criteria for social anxiety disorder mm-hmm. as a child. My anxieties were a little more generalized and we'll talk about that in a minute, but um, I definitely did not like reading in class and it wasn't a matter of I didn't like it. It was terrifying to me, you know, just the thought of having to perform in front of other people is very frightening. But I, I remember having teachers that were very, oh, you, you, you just, you just got to do it. The more you do it, the easier it gets. And a lot of those well-meaning instructors didn't understand that the more that I was forced into that kind of situation without the appropriate support and coping skills, the more fearful I got. And so when we're working with kiddos who have social anxiety disorder, they need to learn skills. They need to have support. We also need to listen to their voice. When they're saying, I'm scared and I don't want to do that, being forced into doing that thing without the appropriate you know, backup and, and the ability to take a break or have a moment to calm down is, is, is only going to make it worse. Episode four right there, the teacher well-meaning going, oh, the more you do it. But to that kid, that's an angry grizzly bear ready to Absolutely. eat you because yes. no matter yes. what you say, I'm getting more fearful and, and I might react. And that's another thing you mentioned, like be in tune to the kid. They might not be able to verbalize what's wrong, but know their actions. Every action is a communication or every bad behavior is a communication, maybe a cry for help. So it's it's a matter of knowing and, and reading. Um, I remember one time, and this has only happened to me once, when my son was in second grade, and that's when his anxiety really started to peak. And I'm there at school to pick him up. The gym teacher comes to me. He's like, "Can we see you in the office?" And I'm like, "Oh, please have a bloody nose or a broken arm, because you know, like, what's <laughs> what's this going to be? Don't beat up a kid." And they couldn't get him out of the school. And I walked in. At this point, he's eight years old, so I've known the kid for eight years. He physically looked like a different child. 
Wow. His he had big dark circles under his eyes. He just looked at me with a furrowed brow. And it was sad because I walked in and here's my own child. And I'm like, you look like a different boy. And once we got him settled down, he was back to himself, but he was physically different. And that mm-hmm. terrified me. Yeah. And it's it, just as we've talked about, the, the fight or flight response is a very physical, instinctive response. And you can tell when somebody is in that state. And we talk about that a lot on this you know podcast where we've focused on anxiety so far, because at, at the heart of anxiety is that feeling threatened, feeling afraid, feeling unsafe, um, and feeling emotionally unsafe in a child's mind or even an adult's mind is the same as being physically unsafe. It's a very similar experience. And so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that he looked completely different. His body was in a very primitive mode. Yeah. And that's, he looked emotionally unsafe. That's exactly right. So you had mentioned earlier in that comment talking about uh, the social anxiety, you said something about you were kind of thought it was general anxiety. So I'm, I'm guessing that's one of them too, is generalized yes. anxiety. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about this. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's weird to have a favorite anxiety disorder, but here we are. <laughs> um, generalized anxiety disorder. And and I will, I'm going to find the statistics on this, Chad, because I would like to know um, if this is more commonly diagnosed than any other, or if there is another that is more frequent. I'm going to find that out. Okay. But generalized anxiety disorder is what we would diagnose a child with who has excessive worries about a variety of things, such as grades or family things or um, their relationships with peers, their performance, uh, you know, specific worries and fears, but lots of them. So um, phobia is a term that we would use to describe kind of an irrational fear of some specific thing. And so you could have a phobia of blood or a phobia of spiders, heights spiders, or spiders. spiders. <laughs> Chad has a phobia of spiders. Arachnophobia. Yeah. Yes. See? So that's a specific phobia. Now, when we're talking about generalized anxiety disorder, this this person or child might have just a ton of different fears and worried thoughts, but it's not focused on just one thing. It's it's all over the place. And so huh. a lot of kids get this diagnosis when their worries are just wide spanning and okay. they cover a lot of ground with their worries. And that's your favorite one, huh? That's, that's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> As a therapist, because that that to you is like something to to conquer, to kind of dig in and and get going. I mean, you're obviously in this profession for a reason, mm-hmm. and so I see why you would say that's that's your favorite. <laughs> and and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, there's so much to work with there. I mean, from from session to session, you can be talking about a variety of different things. But for me, helping a kiddo to see that it's it's not you know you have a hundred different problems. You have one thing that you're applying to lots and lots of things. You have one you know root cause of all these different worries and fears. And so there's always something to talk about. There's always something to to pull and kind of work with, but it all kind of goes back to that same thing, which is a lot of like irrational thinking and negative thinking and, and generally like some poor self-esteem, kind of that sense mm. of I can't handle that or I don't know what to do in this situation. Um, and so generalized anxiety disorder or GAD is, is what we would diagnose there. So that's one of those things too, when you talk about self-esteem is like you are so much more than your worst day you've ever had mm-hmm. because yep. that's one element in time, one part of time. And there's so much more to you, but it's yes. you know, when you're anxious about everything, especially letting people down, that would be, yes. that would be hard. And, and kids with GAD are very hard on themselves and they strive for perfection. Um, they need, you know, constant reassurance and approval from other people. And so in the absence of those things, they tend to very quickly kind of like their, their mind will turn on them and they'll go from, you know, 
oh, I got to be on that. What's wrong with me? I, you know, I'm, I'm not doing a good job in school, so I'm not going to get a good job. And I'm, you know, and the worries just sort of um, snowball in, and it all started with an expectation that was probably not fair, not yeah. Okay. Or at least well explained. Nikki, you mentioned perfectionism. Is that a disorder in and of itself or does that kind of fall into the the envelope of generalized anxiety disorder? Yeah. I would say that perfectionism is oftentimes what's underneath generalized anxiety disorder. Many, many kiddos who meet the criteria for that diagnosis um, do have kind of a sense of trying to be perfect. They're striving for perfection. They're, they're setting really, really steep expectations for themselves. And then when they don't meet those, they 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 suffer and they they feel really bad about it and so it's not a disorder on its own but i think it goes hand in hand with generalized anxiety disorder okay which then and we'll get to this in a second can then lead to depressive tendencies because if you're having low self esteem you're thinking bad things about yourself because you have this perfectionism element to you that can go down another path. And we're going to get to that later in this episode. Um, I wanted to kind of get your opinion on something. One thing that I think the pandemic has done for us is it's opened it up where more people are talking about anxiety and depression disorders. Um, but do you feel like people just throw it around like, oh, I have anxiety or this makes me anxious? Or is it a good thing that people are, are at least getting that word anxiety out into the regular vernacular. Okay. So I've been through some phases with this. So I remember a period in my clinical career where I was super frustrated when people would just throw these terms out and be mm-hmm. like, oh, I totally have an anxiety disorder. And I I would be thinking to myself, well, you have like a mildly inconvenient level of worry about a totally appropriate <laughs> thing right now. Give me a break, you know. And I, I would get super frustrated. And I think that was just my own like, I knew these terms and I was excited to apply them and it, it you know, use them correctly, right? <laughs> Might have been my own generalized anxiety going out there. Use it right. But you also had anxiety as a, as a child. I mean, that was part of you getting involved with this project was because this was you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 10 years ago when you were a kid. Um, <laughs> You're not good at math. <laughs> so I'm not. So I can see where that would be frustrating. Then throw on the hat that this is what you're studying to do for a living and, and you've got all these textbook things. So yeah, I can totally see where that would be yeah. aggravating. It, it, it was frustrating. But then, it, but then I reached a point where, you know, I, I guess some maturity, some more experience. And I realized, you know what? This is an opportunity to educate. This is an opportunity mm-hmm. to help normalize. This is an opportunity to tell people a little bit more to help them kind of like use the appropriate terms. Because the, and, and the other piece of that is that, you know, anxiety is relative. You know, what, what might make me very, very anxious might look very different for you. And mm-hmm. that's okay. And we can talk about it in, in diagnostic terms. But for me, getting down to like what makes a, a human f- function or <laughs> be dysfunctional is really more important. And so I stopped being frustrated with it and use, just use it as an opportunity to better understand. If someone says, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I, I totally have a phobia. And, you know, instead of going, first of all, it's not interfering with your functioning. So whatever. No, I go, oh, really? Tell me more about that. Tell me, tell me about this fear. That sounds like a big problem. Huh. And then, and then maybe there's the opportunity to say, well, actually, technically that's not a phobia. And you're, you're very fortunate that it's not because you can live your life and, and achieve your goals and it's not really getting in your way. Isn't that cool? Um, but sometimes I find out a little bit more and they're not so wrong. And so taking the rule book out of it and just going, actually, you know, I'd like to hear more of your story that that was a, a much more comfortable phase for me to get into. I, I like that because then you might get that person or you probably very often get the people that talk more about it and be like, okay, yeah, you do have anxiety and they can get help or sometimes just mm-hmm. talking about it and relating to people. I know when we started being a little bit more public with my son's anxiety, so many people were like, 
yeah, my kid has that, or I have this. And it's, it's nice. And it's kind of welcoming when you get people. We, I had a, a lady the other day text me about something else. And she's like, I'm loving your podcast. I love that people talk about it. And she said, she's like, I have an 11 year old son with anxiety. And if you ever want to talk, he's in junior high and is doing really great. And I was like, thank you. Because I feel like we've helped out a lot of younger folks who have reached out to my wife and I and, and been like, yeah, this is this and how we handle it. But no one's really ever said, hey, we have a kid that's older than you. Here's what they're going to be going into. If you want some help, we'd be glad to talk to you. And I was like, I would love that. So hopefully that happens very soon. Yeah, that, that would be really great. All right. Getting back on track then of anxiety, we've done three so far. We've had uh, separation anxiety, social anxiety, and generalized anxiety mm-hmm. disorder. Where do we go from here? Okay. So there's a few more that I want to talk about. We also mentioned specific phobias. We didn't say a lot about that, Chad, but mm-hmm. um, that was one that we mentioned. And so specific phobias, just to kind of reiterate, that's that's when you have a very intense, irrational fear about something specific. Now, I, I kind of want to argue with myself for just a second because I said a very intense, irrational fear. But the problem with phobias is that actually sometimes it's pretty darn rational. For example, hmm. if you have a child who is very, very afraid of a tornado and it's kind of reached that phobic level where they can't go outside if it's gray outside or raining, um, where they're having to check the weather constantly to make sure that they're you know not going to experience a storm or something, that's a problem. And it's not that irrational because if you've ever lived through a terrible storm or tornado or something like that, it is catastrophic and it can it can be very, very dangerous. And so that's where um, the treatment of a phobia and helping families to get through all the stuff that comes with that kind of a diagnosis can be really, really challenging because these are things that happen. These are things that you can't control. And so they're right to be afraid of it. And that's where I kind of go back to, we're supposed to have anxiety, we're supposed to be afraid but when you have more fear than protects you, then it's at that point of, of a diagnosis or needing problem. some intervention. Yeah. So where does something like that go into trauma then? When you say like you use a tornado and gosh, all throughout the movie Twister, uh, which is a great movie by the way, but it starts out with Helen Hunt's character in there and her dad gets you know swallowed by the tornado and presumably is killed. I mean, they don't ever actually say that, but it's pretty evident. So then she uses that and then goes to help people with it. But that's, that's a traumatic experience. Absolutely. So that's where her phobia came from. She just chose, her character chose to turn it the other way. But mm-hmm. a lot of other people can't turn it the other way without yes. some help. Yes. And you, you just, you just broke it down so well. So, and, and that actually brings us neatly to another um, diagnosis on that, on that spectrum for kiddos, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. So okay. when you experience something traumatic or life-threatening, you can develop a pattern of symptoms linked to that event um, that that become, you know, a huge interference in your day-to-day life. You talk about Helen Hunt's character. There were probably periods of time after she lost her father that, you know, she might have qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD. But as an adult, it didn't seem that she was hampered by it. She was driven by it. Mm-hmm. It motivated her. She wanted to, to, you know, really get into this storm life and, and you know, I they chase storms, right? I don't, I don't know what they were trying to do. I guess just footage. And- they, they were chasing them, but they also had the technology that they had a little machine called Dorothy. And oh, that's right. it would get swallowed up by the tornado and then all these things would be released and then it would help them understand wind speed and direction okay. and then they could okay. advance the warning system to help people. So that, okay. was, so that she, was their goal. Her experience, she channeled her trauma into mm-hmm. learning more and doing research and, and finding out as much as she could about this thing that she was really afraid of. And she got to a point where she could face storms head on. It, it really, it, it didn't yeah. hold her back. Now, had she stayed in in that, you know, 
post-traumatic stress disorder PTSD state, she would have done everything she could to avoid anything storm-related. She would have relived that storm over and over again in her head. She might have had nightmares. She she might have had flashbacks to the experience, but um, she certainly wouldn't have been channeling her energy into learning more and exposing herself to those things more and more. I think it's interesting, Nikki, that you mentioned post-traumatic stress disorder. I was not anticipating that happening here because most people think of that with military folks and serving in war and coming back and getting PTSD, but children can get this as well. Absolutely. Okay. And, and I would say that in the, you know, the history of mental health research and diagnoses and, and treatment, PTSD outside of the veteran community is newish. It's it's newer. Okay. Initially, we were seeing these symptoms and these th- this sort of package of symptoms in people who are coming back from war. Um, but as more research has been conducted, we, you know, anybody could develop PTSD after a traumatic or life-threatening event. And the, the thing about these events is it could be a wide variety of things. It can be some kind of abuse or, or um, witnessing violence. It can be car accidents. It can be, you know, even even much less intense things. You know, I talked about how when I was a kid, I had um, an experience of getting very, very sick, very, very mm-hmm. publicly. And I would say that, you know, following that, I probably was pretty close to meeting the criteria for that. I was very avoidant of things. I would relive it over and over in my head. Um, those Those symptoms that go along with PTSD can happen in response to anything that is scary or traumatic at any age. So, Chad, there's two other childhood anxiety disorders that we haven't mentioned that I'd like to say a little bit about today. And um, the first one is panic disorder. And this is something that we would diagnose if your kiddo has at least two unexpected panic or anxiety attacks. And, uh, you know, uh, panic attacks are are pretty intense. They can come on suddenly and for no reason. Um, And then they tend to be followed by at least a month or more of concern about having another attack. And so kids and adults alike, when they have a panic attack, they, they say that they feel like they're losing control. They're going crazy. Their heart is beating. They might feel physically ill. And it's just this overwhelming, intense onslaught of anxiety. And so um, panic disorder, a diagnosis of that means that you've had at least two panic attacks and worry about having another. So that's an important one. And we are going to talk about panic attacks in a future episode and tell you a little bit more about how those look and what you can do about them. Um, And then the final childhood anxiety disorder diagnosis that um, I would like to mention today is selective mutism. And this is when kids will refuse to speak in situations where talking is considered like expected or necessary. Um, and And it's to the extent that it interferes with school. Um, Maybe they're, you know, not making friends at all. Um, And so we would call this selective mutism. And they, this, I've seen this a couple of times. And so it's when the anxiety is so intense that they will literally stand there motionless, expressionless, silent, um, and and just not respond to what you're saying. And these kiddos, it's selective because they might be very talkative and display normal behaviors at home or in other places where they're, you know, more feeling more emotionally safe. Um, But at school or in public situations, they may refuse to talk. And so uh, this is something that tends to happen around the time that school starts. Um, And it's, I I don't want to say that it's fairly common. I have seen more of it um, over the last few years than I did early in my career. Um, And it's, it's, I would say connected to social anxiety disorder. So kiddos who have that diagnosis where it's so intense that they simply do not speak around other people, um, that's where we would apply selective mutism. You mentioned having your favorite anxiety disorder. So I feel fine saying like, this is fascinating. I'm learning so much um, about all this. So I'm, I'm hoping it helps. 
Let's now go back to, we'd mentioned a, a couple topics ago of depression and <laughs> neither one of us are, are good at math or, or like math. But one thing I remember from geometry that I was awful at was um, Venn diagrams. Mm-hmm. And it was explained to us when we started down this road of anxiety with my kid that you have anxiety as one bubble, you have depression as another bubble, and you have OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder Mm -hmm. as another bubble. And they kind of fall into that Venn diagram where they'll go. And we were told like, once you start treating anxiety, you might see depressive tendencies pop up. You start treating that and then you might see some OCD tendencies pop Mm -hmm. up until you get everything regulated with whether it's medicine um, or therapy or a combination of both. Mm -hmm. So what words of advice do you have then for parents and caregivers and uh, other adults to watch for? You've told us about anxiety things, but how do you start to know like, okay, we're going down a slippery slope here toward either depression or OCD? Okay, so this is this is again, you know, I hate to keep saying everything's my favorite, but we are talking <laughs> about one of my favorite subjects, so it, it makes sense. But it, the so so anxiety I see very much on a spectrum. So you might have the mild nervousness or shyness that comes with, you know, that we've talked about a bunch of times. It's totally mm-hmm. normal to feel that way sometimes, but then it escalates, and then you get into some more intense, you know, anxiety like uh, social anxiety disorder, separation anxiety, generalized anxiety. We we get a little further up the spectrum, and we get into a more complex type of anxiety um, known as obsessive compulsive disorder. And, and so you just mentioned that in the Venn diagram. And so when you start to deal with that kind of thing, there's lots of systems going into that. So let's talk for a second about what obsessive compulsive disorder is, um, because that's, that's a pretty important one. When I think a lot of people think on that instantly, at least I did guilty was it was, I've got to constantly wash my hands, mm-hmm. germaphobe kind of thing, but there is right. so much more to OCD. It's, it's obsessive so thinking more. and you can't get off of whatever you're thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's unwanted and intrusive thoughts and the feeling, uh, the, like feeling compelled to repeatedly perform rituals and routines to try to ease this anxiety. And so it can be things like washing your hands. It can also be counting ceiling tiles, or it can be tapping the table. It can be, um, you know, Turning organizing. Turning the light switch off or yes, you know, uh, checking the doorknobs. But it can also be those thoughts, mm-hmm. those just obsessive thoughts that if I don't do well on this test, I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to fail this grade. I'm going to not get into a good college. Yeah. And it's those if thoughts that become really problematic because, you know, if you're a kiddo and you're thinking, if I don't look behind this door three times before I get in bed, somebody I love is going to die tomorrow. Boy, is that a powerful series of like thoughts and behaviors. And somebody might say, you know, that's ridiculous. You don't need to do that. And you might think for a moment, yeah, it probably is ridiculous. But boy, if Mm. if OCD has really taken hold, it's not as simple as just not doing it. And so it's just, it's, it's a series of thoughts and sort of rituals and behaviors. And it can look a lot of different ways. And um, I remember one of the bigger surprises as I got into my clinical practice was realizing that I, you know, I thought OCD would be so easy to see that people would come in and say, okay, I have these things and I would, I would right away recognize. But the, the truth of the matter is it looks different in every person and especially children who are struggling with OCD. There's some shame that can develop around those obsessive rituals and those obsessive thoughts. And so they don't share it. They, they don't necessarily start there. I've worked with several children where you know, I thought I was maybe treating generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety disorder, but as I got to know them and got to better understand what was going on in their minds and those day-to-day, ba- you know, rituals, and as the the kiddos became more comfortable talking about things, I learned that actually OCD was kind of at the heart of it. Mm. And so, back to your original question of, you know, what do you do when 
you're working on one thing and you start to see symptoms of another thing. Um, the relationship between depression and anxiety is, is very strong. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot, you know, does the, is it the apple before the cart? Nope. Definitely mixing up my. It's the horse before the cart. Apples and oranges. <laughs> there we Maybe go. we have a cart full of apples and oranges, and we right, right. put the cart before the horse. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take the silly sayings out of it and just go with, uh, you know, maybe you're treating some anxiety, and then you start to notice that the child is withdrawing more, and they're not, you know, doing the things that they would normally do, and they seem really sad. Um, and part of it is because as you treat anxiety, you're taking away some of their coping skills. They, they're the things that they've been doing that can help them keep going and get through those symptoms, when you eliminate that or shift that, then, you know, they, they need to replace that with something else. The other thing, the other connection that's probably a little bit um, more direct is that when you feel bad about yourself or you're constantly worried, that's exhausting, right? Yeah. It's exhausting and it's hard to keep your energy up. And so a lot of times we'll see those depression symptoms along with it. And um, you, you had mentioned, you know, if, you, if you're treating one, then the other might surface. Well, as anxiety gets better, you might find out that depression was hiding under that all along. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's very, very hard to know what comes first with some kids. But I would say that, you know, if you're, if you're working with an anxiety disorder in a child, it is not unusual to see some depression symptoms surface as well. I feel like we should say here that if it's, if it's something very severe, get them to the emergency room. Absolutely. Um, if, if there's talk of self-harm, mm -hmm. um, ask if there's a plan. Yep. Um, if they have a plan, emergency room. Yep. If they have means, they have access to things that could harm them, you know, that's ask those questions. It's okay to ask your kids if they've been thinking about hurting themselves or yeah. what they would do if they were to act on those thoughts. And I mean, I mean, wouldn't you want to know that? Absolutely. You know, as a parent. But it's as, scary. As, it it's is scary. scary to ask because if they say it, I yeah. think this is an important subject. If they, if your child says to you, yes, I want to die or yes, I've been thinking about hurting myself, you know, just like we had kind of talked about in, in previous episodes, our instinctive like judgment of ourselves kind of comes in and we go, but I don't. I don't, I don't want that. That makes me a bad parent. This is somehow my fault. And all I can say is we kind of have to set the ego aside mm -hmm. and go, but what's best for this kiddo right now? And asking if they're okay and making sure they're safe is far more important. And any child can experience those thoughts. Um, it does not mean you're a bad parent. It just no. means you're struggling with something and help is out there. And getting them help would, <laughs> would get you back into the good parent crisis, I guess. <laughs> um, so what about if they're having maybe not so severe signs what steps do they need to take to get their child help? So do you mean, you know, not so severe signs of depression or are we, we talking anxiety disorder? What do you mean? Kind of all of the above. So if okay. you're not, if, okay. if you're not talking self-harm or, or have plans, but you're starting to see your child be sad, stop going to things mm -hmm. that they once found enjoyable, stop hanging out with their friends, um, online gaming, you know, getting more involved in that and, and just kind of retreating from everyday life and what they like, what do you need to do? So you have a couple options. If you and your child have a close relationship and they're fairly verbal, ask them questions. How are you doing? How are you feeling? You know, um, have you been feeling good about yourself? Do you ever think bad things about yourself? What's what's tripping you up? You can ask a number of different questions. Um, in fact, uh, I've found 
Pinterest and, and maybe, I don't know, Pinterest is still cool. I, can, I can't keep up with what's cool, Chad. I, but they have recipes on Pinterest. I didn't know you could use it for this. There's so many things on there. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the things I did find is there's lots and lots of ideas for, you know, parenting and how to talk to your kids and what like lists of questions you can ask them that they'll actually answer. Huh. So, you know, start, start by having a conversation. But if you don't feel comfortable having that conversation or you think things have gone far enough that, that you don't feel comfortable, you know, approaching the subject, your primary care physician is a next mm. good you know point to to stop and say hey you know here's some concerns we've seen the the beauty of going to your primary care physician is they are going to be able to make referrals they're going to know who's good mm. they're going to know who in the area can get you in and who can't and so if you're looking for counseling if you're looking for psychiatric services if you're looking for any other type of treatment or support start with your PCP and they'll they'll help you get set up now if you already know of a community mental health center or a counseling center in the area you can call them you don't usually need a referral from your physician to go. But if you're not sure where to start, your PCP is a great place to start. And just to clarify, PCP, primary care physician. That's right. <laughs> not another kind of PCP. We are not, yes. <laughs> That's a subject for another. One episode. last question for you. Um, and I already know the answer to it, so I could just send the episode off with this. But can you have more than one anxiety disorder? Yes. Okay. Nice. Yes, you can. Okay. Yes, you can, you can have several different disorders. And, but what happens more often than not is – you, you remember that spectrum that I mentioned earlier, yeah. you know, so, so as a child, you know, maybe it starts out as separation anxiety disorder, um, but somewhere along the line, it shifts and it starts to kind of manifest differently. Now it's social anxiety disorder because the child is older and maybe they've, they've gotten more comfortable with being away from their primary caregiver, but they're still having a lot of fear about how they might be evaluated or about being around other people. Or maybe for other kids now it's evolved into, you know, obsessive rituals or that kind of thing. Or maybe you're seeing, you know, the more general worries that come with generalized anxiety disorder. It absolutely can evolve over time. And one of the things hmm. that I tell the families I work with is expect to see this service in different ways. Even if treatment is working, even if you are going to a counselor or you are taking medication or you're having family therapy to address these things, you may see the the symptoms come back and they might look a little bit different the next time that they come back. And so um, a lot of that is because when a child goes through a change or a stressor or the family goes through something, some of that old stuff can kind of come back up. And a kid at 18 months with some separation anxiety is going to look very, very different than a kid at 12 who's now dealing with pre-adolescence and other kids and school and sports and all those kinds of things. So it's just going to look a little different. And so it doesn't mean that the earlier attempts to address it or work through it or treat it failed. It just means that that's kind of how anxiety works. If you have an underlying anxiety difficulty, it, it may be that you show it differently throughout the lifespan. Does that make sense? Yes. To quote one of my favorite country singers from the 90s, Tracy Lawrence, the only thing that stays the same is everything changes. <laughs> that's, there you go. That's a good one. That's a good one. So um, we want to kind of give you a, a reminder. We do have a Facebook page. We also have a website, scrambledpodcast.com. You can check that out. Anything we talk about in any of these episodes, we put under the resources page. So if we talk about books or videos or other podcasts, we will put direct links there. On Facebook is your chance to kind of interact with us. Um, we're soon going to be taking some of your questions about anxiety, and we're going to do an episode or two, depends on how many we get out of that. So we encourage you to like us on Facebook. We're also on Instagram and our website. One final note, and uh, we'll kind of tease to the next episode, is one telltale sign of anxiety is a panic attack. 
Mm-hmm. And um, again, I live with anxiety in my household. I have never had a panic attack myself. I've seen them in action and they are terrifying. So in our next episode, we're going to talk about what a panic attack is. If you know someone who could benefit from our podcast, we hope you'll share with them. It is our goal to start a conversation and that conversation continues with you. Thank you.